So um, how do you find that thing that tells you you're okay and the world's okay and then keep it with you, you know? Um, that's, a, that's a great, uh, that's the great task of each human. We, choose, we each have to find our own way. Uh, but if you can do that, man, there's incredible beauty in each moment. And, and, and there's incredible, there's violence in humans, but there's incredible beauty in humans, you know? Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a podcast from our addiction treatment centers here in Atlanta. I'm your host, Matt Shedd. A lot of our guests talk about God a lot in their stories. Our guest today, Larry J., isn't one of those people. A neurologist who came to us from Kentucky and has been sober now for 14 years, Larry had a painful history with religion. His journey trying to find a higher power took a few turns and landed him in a place that is different from a lot of the alumni that we speak to. And that's why we thought it was important that we talk to him. We want everyone to know that they are welcome here at MAR and that there is a path to recovery for them, regardless of what they believe or don't believe in. I also check in with Ashley McQueen, one of the men that Larry credits with saving his life, to provide his memories of Larry's recovery. While both of them are saying many of the same things and making a lot of the same points, Ashley's memory of Larry's recovery has a distinctly more spiritual flavor, making it interesting to hear both of these men together. So let's get right into it. What does spirituality and all that mean to you, and how has it helped you stay sober? Because I know you have a little bit of a different view of it than maybe some of our other guests. I really don't uh, identify with spirituality. Don't identify with that as a um, part of my recovery, really. Um, Spirituality, that concept um, and the concept of religion, God scared me and chased me away from AA at times. I view that all that stuff in a different way now. Um, like I said, AA saved my life and everything it was about and at. It's a, it's a place where people are trying to get sober. It was it gave me the support I needed for years. For years, I was going to meetings every single day. And I needed that. I needed that place and that support and the comfort it gave me, you know. And I've, over time, I've replaced what I needed with something more internal. Well, I'm a scientist. I'm a neurohospitalist. <clears throat> that's a, I'm a specialist in neurology, an MD, uh, but I don't do any clinic work. I did for most of my career, for 30-some years, but now I work in a hospital. So I just knew, do neurology in the hospital. I, work, I do strokes, seizures, post-cardiac arrest, coma, really sick people, and... Uh, and I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. So, so I'm a scientist, and you know, I've always been a reader and a scientist. And so, when I got sober, um, you know, it was uh, 
there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of pain and it was there for many, many years. I suffered, you know. And so that drove me to try to find some answers. You know, I didn't want to hurt the way I was hurting. And uh, so, I mean, initially I, I was in AA, you know, and you're told to get a sponsor and do the steps. And that's what I did. I simply did it. And I did it as well as I could. And at times, you know, um, I believed in a God and I believed in spirituality. And that was there for a while. But I studied everything else too. I've read, I've read stories. I always am reading stories about uh, human beings and what happened to them, real life stories, true things that happened to people, what happened to the, in, in, in history, historical, what happened in human history, and, and, and then more scientific stuff, evolution, and physics. I read physics books, laws of physics, you know? And so with all of that, for me, um, I have a lot of answers that, that work for me, you know, where we came from. I mean, 14, 13, 14 billion years ago, it started out and there was three elements, you know, there was hydrogen and helium and lithium. And it was mostly hydrogen, simple, tiny elements. And I look at this, I look at the structure of those three every morning to remind me of where I came from. And that, and to think that everything, everything here came from that. Um, in some way, I mean, it's so impossible to imagine the uh, size of the universe and the, and, and, and 14 billion years, to just conceive what that is, it's just, I, I tried in many ways and it's, it's hard to do, but when you think of hydrogen and then you look at outside at the trees and the buildings and people and stars, you know, it's just mind boggling. We were, there's so much violence out there in the whole process of the formation of things and, and, and evolution even, that violence gets inside of us. It's come along and it's, it's it's a part of us, you know, and to escape that, to really grow up and learn to be a good human being and like yourself and feel safe in the world, you have to have some kind of concept of that. And, uh, you know, we need guidance from somewhere to get to a safe place. I used to always say in my counseling sessions, you know, I don't feel safe. I didn't feel safe, you know, I didn't quite know what that meant, but it was this, I didn't, in my head, I didn't feel safe. And um, the the tendency of human beings is to grow up and see the world the way they see it. And then if they're feeling bad, the tendency is to blame something or someone. You know, it's, it's I feel bad because this happened. I feel bad because that person said something. I feel bad because of something outside of me. When we feel bad because of our what's going on in our mind and how we were raised and how it sees things. And that is my belief today. My feelings are mine and they come, come from the way I see the world and I have to change that or my feelings aren't gonna change. 
if I want to feel good, I better come up with some kind of way to see the world in that way. And so, um, and so that's the way I end up have ended up seeing it, you know. Um, and and our programming and our experience is so powerful. It's it's running our lives and running our view of the world and running how we feel and, and act. And we don't realize how how most of it is run by, not by us. I believe there is a little bit of choice in you, human, in a human being, but it's not a lot. I don't think a lot. I don't think a lot in the moment, but I think that we have some. And over time, with our, with our efforts, we can change ourselves and we can change our minds, you know. And that's been proven to be true in science and everything too. So that's been my efforts for a long time. Those concepts are pretty good and they're out there and they're in books. And some people believe them and some people don't. The hard part is to get to the place where you carry it with you all day long. To carry it with you that I'm, this is my world, it's my mind that's causing all the problems, all of them. And I, I can fix that. It's me. It was me all along. I was hurting and sad and desperate, and it was my mind. <laughs> but I didn't know that. And now, now I try to carry that with me every moment. And when I know that, I can do something about it, you know. And, and I, my idea is to bring myself here and let go of all those distractions so I can be here and be present for what's right here. And the beauty of being alive and having consciousness in a world and being aware of it and seeing it, you know, so I can appreciate every divine moment. So um, that's my goal and that's what I work at and that's what I do every day and I wake up reminding myself of that every day and I, and I'm starting to carry it with me you know that beautiful concept that it's okay and it's I'm human it's okay to be wrong it's okay to make mistakes it's okay to be me and it's okay for everybody else to be that way too you know and so that's my people might call that my spirituality Kind of the crux of change for you has been finding a different way to relate to your own minds. Um, even more than that, trying to to release it from distractions. You're talking about when you're so upset, and you're you're trying to find something that comforts you. You know, we reach out. That's what we did with drugs. They comforted us. The stuff worked for me, man. Worked right till the end. Some people, they say it doesn't work in the end, but now nah, for me, it worked great till I stopped, you know, and saw what it had done. But um, that was a way for me. That's what was comforting me my whole life. That was my answer before. And, um, and we all, there's a lot of people who go out and look for distractions. Let's find something we love to do at work. Let's find something we love to do here or there. Let's find a relationship. I was great at hunting for relationships to fix me, make me feel better. Always hunting for something out there. And um, for me, that's not how you, how it, how you end up finding peace. I, 
I want to eliminate my distractions and things I'm grabbing and reaching out to. I want to be present right now and, and be in charge of what my mind pays attention to, which is what's going on right now. And the, um, there's a great book there's, there's, of all the books I've read. Uh, there's one that really gave me the most guidance. It's called The Way to Love by Anthony DeMello. I'm very familiar with it. I was just reading it myself. I've just, I just recently read it and was rereading it. Yeah. It's interesting you pick Anthony DeMello too, because he's Catholic. Um, and I mean, but not in the kind of classical way that we think about that, but. He was a Jesuit, but he, he totally disregarded a lot of the beliefs and teachings of the church. But he ended up getting down to that point where he's saying, you get, you got to get yourself, you got to get yourself straight so that you can, because if you do that, that's your whole goal. It's not that you don't care about other people or things. It's that when you're, when you're with them, you're with them. And when you're not with them, you're with whatever you're with. And basically you're with yourself finally. You get to be with yourself and you actually like yourself. <laughs> what was going on for you when you decided to reach out and get some help uh, from Mar? Oh, I didn't decide to reach out. I got arrested. <laughs> what? So describe the arrest. What was going yeah. on? Oh... I mean, I was in, I got in trouble with the medical board in Minnesota in 1999 and I got thrown into treatment and three years of monitoring. And I drank every day of monitoring for three years. At the time, they didn't have adequate tests to, you know, watch somebody and know if they're drinking or not. I could, I outsmarted them then. The tests are much more sophisticated. You can't outsmart it now. But um, that was like a speed bump. I didn't even care booze was working and I was, people were the problem, it was their problem. And then when I got um, arrested the second time, I got divorced. Um, I was living in Minnesota for 40 years and I was cold and I was divorced for the third time. And because of my drinking was a big part of that. And then I went, I decided I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go where it's warm. I'm going to go move to the South. <laughs> and I got a job in Kentucky. I thought that was the South. Well, it is a little bit. It's on the border. But it's not. It's still cold in the winter in some ways. And anyways, I went to Kentucky. I'm going to save my life. The geographical move. And then um, I lasted six months. Uh, I... Uh, I got arrested twice. I was driving to work and in the company vehicle and I stopped at the liquor store on the way to work, got a pint of vodka. I already was probably tanked from the night before, drank some more, had trouble driving. So I pulled over. I'm sure I tried to hide from the police, but they found me. Some people were calling in about me driving all over the road and 
they arrested me and then I don't know, I was wandering down the road, going to get some booze falling all over and my boss picked me up and put me in the hospital again. And then they escorted me to the airport. Then I got to the airport and uh in Atlanta. I had had maybe a couple drinks in the morning at the bar, you know, and probably had one on the plane. Only three or four drinks. I mean, for me, I wasn't even warmed up. Wasn't really drunk. But um, I showed up at the top of the stairs and Doug is waiting for me. Where you been for the last hour? You know? And he put me in Peachford. And I was in the hospital. Then they detoxed me. Which, you know, I probably needed it from all the years. I had been detoxed, but anyways, that's how I got to Mar. Do you remember what that was like coming into Mar and kind of your first impressions of it? No, everything was annoying. It's a bunch of people talking about, talking about God and church and 12 steps, and I've heard it all before, and it was just all these, and a bunch of people that looked happy, which I thought they were faking it, and just... Ridiculous. I mean, I remember my first day at Mar when he brought me there. And he, before I went to Peachford, I got to, I had to deal with Anderson. He was in charge of admissions and insurance, and I fought him all day long. I don't know why they. It was Doug. He just wanted to get me sober, and he did everything he could, and they kept me. And then when I had it been out of my system for long enough. Um, suddenly it just kind of dawned on me what I'd done to my children. I mean, I'd abandoned them. I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a great father. I wanted to be in their lives and take care of them. And um, I had abandoned them. I'd, I'd tortured them. I'd wrecked them, wrecked and wrecked everything. I just, all of a sudden, it just came crystal clear to me. And, you know, I was raised Catholic. And I was raised with sin and shame and morality. And I was always this moral, righteous person and knew everybody. I knew everything that was wrong and I knew what was right. And that morality is probably the greatest factor in my struggle that kept me in pain for all those years. Um, it was an excess of morality. And I felt so bad about what had happened in myself. I thought I wrecked everything and had wrecked my life and wrecked my relationships and wrecked life. I couldn't live it. I couldn't be happy ever again. And I couldn't get rid of that, even though I knew it wasn't true and I had all sorts of support and all that. I couldn't get rid of that heavy burden of shame I had. Um, even consciously, I knew and I worked through it and I went to counseling and I did everything I could, but it it just sat there inside of me, you know. Um, and I and it took me all this time to to sort it out and working on what I'm working on every day to uh, overcome that. My morality crippled me. It should be in this nice little spot where it 
governs your behavior and doesn't let you do bad things, but it was crippling me. Um, I can read you something here. It's on, yeah. the, it's on the front of my 12 and 12. I heard it from a counselor at Mar. Um, and I, that I feed the hungry, forgive an insult, and love my enemy. These are great virtues. But what if I should discover that the poorest of beggars and most impudent of offenders are all within me and that I stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? That's uh, Carl Jung. And uh, so I... I've had to learn, you know, about humanity and how we ended up being violent and making mistakes and getting addicted and falling down. And I've had to, with the guidance of a few people and some books, and I needed that guidance, I found a way to accept my humanity, you know, and what happened. I lost a lot of relationships and I lost a lot of, a lot of parts of my past. I think I was trying to get them all back for a long time, you know. And and a lot of them never came back. I do have um, a relationship with some of my kids now. Uh, a few of them have let me back in. Uh, but the relationships, I didn't get them back. They're different relationships now. And uh, relationships always change, but... Um, you know, you mentioned Ashley. Um, he was one of the key people. There's been a few key people and a few things. Mar, AA. I mean, my children saved my life. I was so, I did care so much about being a father. I got to this place where look what I did. I never wanted to drink after that. Um, and there was a time when I felt so bad. You have to think about suicide. You have to, I, I, got, I can't take this. This is so awful. I got to find a way out. And, and they saved me from that. I couldn't do that because of what I had already done to them. And it took it off the table. And so um, Mar and AA and my children, you know, saved my life. And Ashley did in an unusual way. I always wanted to be a good man, you know. And he showed me that was possible. I saw him be a good man. And, and that was what Ashley gave me, you know. That I knew it could, could happen. And uh, I would, um, I, I strive to be that in whatever ways I can. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a special guy to me. Mm-hmm. Peace out to a lot of people. Here's the guy that Larry was talking about, Ashley McQueen. Yeah, I have to be careful now, too. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta watch what I say now, man. There's, there's, it's, it's put down for posterity. Come back to bite my ass. Yeah. Um, so he had this thing where he was, 
he was he had this a guy who was a very religious guy was his first sponsor and of course that was just a terrible idea um so then somehow or another Doug I think Doug had something to do with it I don't know anyway I started working with him and he he had this black marker and he would when we were reading in the book he would mark out anything that remotely pertained to God and he was doing it like at me trying to get me to have a response to it and I said I don't care what you do to your book it's your book you can mark up anything you want as long as we just kind of keep going that's all I care about he was like what because the guy he'd had before was like telling him you can't do this and you gotta do this that didn't work so so I was like yeah you whatever you want to do with it man like let's read it first and then you can mark whatever um so he kind of so it wasn't very long before he quit doing that you know, it's like, I was like, sure, go ahead. Um, the little <laughs> reverse thing. But so this happened months and months later. I mean, months and months. He was in three quarters. And he went to, he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. Um, and he went to this conference in Chicago. He got, he did put in a TL and he was able to go to this conference in Chicago on addiction medicine. So he was thinking about. He's a practice, He's a doctor, but he was thinking about stuff, and he was had an interest. He developed an interest in, and uh, he went to this conference, and he was call, he'd call me at the conference, and he was complaining about how how screwed up they were. Like the people at the conference had it all wrong. Like they don't understand what they're talking about. <laughs> Uh, they don't get it, you know. And he was talking about it from a perspective of somebody who's in treat, been in treatment and seeing these things this way. And the addiction medicine people are there. I guess it was like on the front edge of medically assisted treatment and stuff like that. And he's coming at it from a perspective of you can't approach it like that. And so he was call, he called me a bunch because he was. And he would leave me voicemails, too, so I wouldn't, didn't talk to him all the time, so I heard this stuff. And I remember at one point saying something to him about, well, why don't you try to find some kind of principle or something, you know, to practice something besides all your energy being negative about what these people are doing. Try to find something that you can hear or something that you can build on. There, there's some kind of, because there's got to be some positive in there. And it seems like all your energy is negative. And then he called, and there was another voicemail from him, and it was, I, you know, something. It's like, I'm trying, but it's not working. <laughs> um, and then I get a voicemail from him. He says, so I had to leave. I just had to leave. And I walked out, and I'm, he's actually, he, he actually grew up in Chicago. And I'm walking down the street, and I see this, there's a church with a courtyard beside it. And I'm just looking to try to find some peace. Um, you know, my, and he goes in, and he sits down for a while, and he's quiet, and he sees this statue that's like a, in the courtyard. And he just kind of gets down. I don't know. I don't remember whether he prayed or not, but he was just trying to get quiet and just kind of get peaceful. And 
when he got through and he got ready to stand up, he looked and at the bottom of the statue, it said, live simply. And he said, okay. <laughs> I, okay. Uh, and he said, it's better now. <laughs> Feels better now. Um, it's like, so the atheist is like doing his version of something, trying to find something. And to me, it was like a different version of, okay, I'm looking for something to help me have some peace. And that's, I can start there. And the idea for me, personally, I don't think it meant this to him, but it, for me, the live simply thing was just like, yes. <laughs> that sounds so <laughs> inviting to me. Um, like, just try to cut all that stuff away and just... Um, you know, what's the simple thing in front of me here? What's important? Um, and not all that, all those trappings and all that other stuff or what somebody else is saying or whatever. So he went to, went, and, and the, the miracle there too was that he could approach a church. Um, he got a history with organized religion. It's not good on both sides. <laughs> Uh, so he had the space for that, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, so here was a guy that was marking stuff out of his book. It's the same guy that could go sit in a church courtyard and try to find some kind of, some kind of something. And my, the whole thing for me was that I got to be on the side of that and experienced it from over here. And it was tremendous help to me. It, like, it helped me a great, a great deal. Like, even though I'm on the periphery of it. Um, I'm getting calls from Chicago from him that are, <laughs> that are like, uh, helping me. <laughs> you know, there's a way out. Everyone's got to find a way out, you know. Um, I don't... Um, I'm not real active with AA. I love an AA meeting. Absolutely love it. I can walk into any AA meeting anywhere and it's awesome. Just friggin' awesome, you know. Um, and the 12 steps, they've got me where I am, you know, but I don't think about the 12 steps. I mean, I don't, I don't think about spirituality. I just wake up and work on my day. That's all I do now. And you know, I have, I've, I'm finding some peace. Uh, I got a plan and it's kind of working for me and I, I'm getting better over, over time, you know, I'm getting better. And, um, finding that beauty in life again. Uh, it's, it's precious. I don't want to, you know, I'm 70. I don't want to miss what's left. I was, uh, I missed over the time I got sober in 2009. And I missed many of those years since then. I missed them. You know, all the time I was trying to get things back and hurting because I thought something was wrong out there or something was wrong with me. And I I all this great stuff was happening around me. I was missing it. 
because I hurt so bad, you know. But um, I'm not missing. There's a lot of things I'm not missing today, and that's uh, it's pretty awesome. When he first got here, I was sitting outside of the spiritual life group. I can't remember why, but I was going to why he and I were sitting out. But we were sitting outside, and he was telling me how he got to treatment. And the whole story was like he's in, this is my version of it, not his, okay? But he's in Minnesota, and he's lived there for all this time, and Minnesota basically has kicked him out. That's not, that's my version of it. Um, he's drank himself out of Minnesota. <laughs> um, and he's trying to figure out where else to go. And it seems like there were three places that he had the choice of. One of them was in some place in Texas, I think. Maybe it was two places. Anyway, he had choices of where he was going to go from Minnesota. And he ended up picking eastern Kentucky, which is the one that probably most other people would have said, oh, get me, let me go here, let me go here. So he, eastern Kentucky, which is blighted and, uh, you know, poverty and all that stuff. And, <laughs> and he chooses to go there, and then he goes there, and he ends up, Blowing up. <laughs> His life blows up. Uh, and In a bad way. In a bad way. His alcoholism shows up and DUIs and loses his job and all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, um, that's how he gets to Mar because he's in Kentucky. And at that time, if you were an impaired physician in Kentucky, you, there was no choice about it. You were coming to Mar. Burns Brady sent everybody that even remotely looked like they had a problem with with alcohol or drugs. And you came to treatment, and I'm sitting here listening to that whole thing, you know. And he's already let me know, be clear that he's an atheist. And I'm like, man, that's a spiritual story, because <laughs> it's like if you'd have picked one of those other places, there's no way you would. And he didn't have money; he didn't have enough money to pay for treatment, and they let him come in anyway even though it wasn't clear how he was going to pay for treatment. Um, and I'm like, so if you'd have picked one of the other places, you wouldn't have ended up here where this is the place you're going to get sober. And that's a spiritual story to me. And he's going, what? What are you talking about, a spiritual story? <laughs> that's not what I wasn't telling you, a spiritual story. <laughs> and for me, it was like, yeah. It's like, there's God's hands all on that. Whatever God means to, to you, but um, and for him it wasn't at all. It was like, no, I just made this choice. Any last uh, things you want to pass on to people that are listening? If you could pass on something, it's that <laughs> it's it's a, it's it's inside of you. The problem's there. If we knew how to raise children to be responsible for their own feelings, like they knew it was them that was feeling angry and hurt and it was their feelings and they didn't reach out and blame other people or blame things. If children grew up knowing that as adults, took responsibility for themselves completely, this world would change. It would be a different world, you know? You know, we got to just realize it's us. It's in us and it's our view. And we change that view and the world changes, you know. And uh, I don't know, there's, there's, I, I felt hopeless for a long time. I felt sad and hurt and I suffered for 
eight to 10 years in my recovery. And um, so there's, there's hope, you know? They were telling me when I first got sober, it's like, oh, don't miss the miracle. It's coming. And it didn't come, you know? And I hurt for a long time. So some, there's a lot of people in recovery hurting for a long time and it gets, feels hopeless. And for that, it doesn't, there's hope. <laughs> I'm proof of that. So there's a, there's a way out, but if you're not finding peace, you're just probably looking at the wrong things, you know? All right, that's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. My name is Matt Shedd. Our executive producer is David Tate. If you'd like to reach us, you can email us at podcast at marinc.org. That's podcast at m-a-r-r-i-n-c dot o-r-g. Thank you again for joining us, and we're already looking forward to next time.